Hi, my name is Jeremy Hicks. I'm one of the content creators with the U.S. Institute Against Human Trafficking and Kids Not For Sale. What you're about to listen to is an interview that our founder, Kevin Malone, had with a survivor by the name of Ori. Ori was first trafficked as an 11-year-old girl, but had been previously sexually abused since the age of five. The day that we shot this interview, she spent that morning sharing her story with us. The reason she shared this story was to help provide perspective of how a child is trafficked in the United States. The reality is that her story is not uncommon, which is a horrifying stat in itself. To listen to her full story, you can find it as the first three episodes of this podcast. I'd encourage you to listen to her full story so that you can become more educated and possibly help prevent trafficking of women, children, and even boys and men. That's actually what this discussion is about between Kevin and Ori, preventing sex trafficking in the United States. So often we hear about human trafficking and we do not know how to respond. Many of us care, many of us believe this is a terrible crime, but we're not the police. It's so extreme of an issue. How do we even scratch the surface of becoming involved? Well, Ori helps us with that during this interview. I hope that you find it as insightful as our team has. Here is the interview. Ori, thanks for being here today. It's been a pleasure to uh, hang out with you and hear st- your story. And I'd like to talk about prevention. How, how can we prevent people from being trafficked? What can we do as a society? And uh, I'd love to get your thoughts and ideas and hopefully we can make a difference. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity to be able to speak with you all. I think the number one important thing, though, is really focus on changing the hearts of and minds of today's society and like the culture that's being definitely driven um, to go really against what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. But the number one thing is creating awareness. As much as we think that the world knows about human trafficking, I don't think we really know about the details of it. Like I think that we understand certain parts and how it happens on other in other places in We understand that it's happening in other places of the world, but when it comes to talking about what's happening in the United States, a lot of us even choose to turn a blind eye to it, or we have this perspective about, you know, commercial sexual exploitation, even for children, just started probably about like 10, 15 years ago. It's not some, you know, older thing that has been already being able to change the narrative for youth or saying that there's no such thing as child prostitutes, right? Because and so I think that the first thing is creating awareness that it's actually happening in our, right, in our backyards, everywhere across the nation. It's not one specific geographic. It's not one specific you know, population. It's not one specific ethnic group. It's happening everywhere and it can happen to anybody. And that first starts with you know, awareness. Then the next thing is also how do we communicate that message? Like how do we tell the real honest truth about what is happening in our communities? how we see things, getting an understanding from even our partners in our community, you know, how other people view it, you know, is there, do they believe it's a choice for a lot of these kids? And so in order for us to collaborate, in order for us to make change, all of us have to be willing to sit at the table together. And I think that's the one huge thing that I've seen is a lot of division with so many community partners, um, even large organizations, large businesses is that, we're trying to do the right thing, but we're not having one objective goal, you know? And so 
I think that is really important. But as long as all of us as organizations know about the problem and there's still millions of people that do not know this is happening, mm -hmm. we're missing the mark with that. What are some ways that we could do a better job as a society on letting everyone know that this is America, an American problem, that American men are the number one purchasers of sex from humans in the world. How can we let America know that this isn't an international problem, although it is only, but this is an American problem, that American men are driving uh, this problem? You know, the main thing is that accepting that the problem is here and also accepting the fact that maybe someone you love or somebody that you know could be possibly being trafficked or being abused. And also accepting the fact that some of our very American men's from even whether it's corporate, whether it's in other areas of life, are purchasing sex. You know, I've stood in many, many fundraisers and I've said, you know, it might be some men in this room that have actually bought sex and purchased sex before here in the United States. You know, and it gets really quiet, but that's the honest truth. And so I think it's accepting even as, you know, married couples, accepting the fact that your husband or your wife might be a purchaser, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and that goes into a whole nother thing. But I think really about raising community awareness, finding out what the community knows, finding out um, how the community thinks that they can actually combat this alongside with us in partnership because we can't come into communities and try to reinvent this wheel, right? Of being able to create awareness or create resources. Like what do they actually need? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times too, is that us as organizations don't need to come in and try to charge the community for the training. Mm -hmm. Like we should be willing, there should be funders and people that are willing to pour into an organization to go out to these communities and to really wear raise awareness, really have town halls, really have your state senates and really having your mayors and stuff um, have these, these meetings in the community that we can bring awareness. I think another thing too is that sometimes we're missing the mark when we think so big on needing to speak. Sometimes it starts with just going to that community center in that area that can actually reach the populations that might be most impacted. You know, because maybe the populations that are being that are being underserved or the populations that are not being reached, right? Even for preventative measures, that a lot of times that we have to go to them, they may not be able to get to us. So where may that be? Is that posting things at a library? Is it, you know, putting awareness and stuff up in certain areas that way that we can then lead them to, you know, a town hall or a recreation center or a community center that we can host something there. And so nothing is too small to hold awareness. I think that's a good point. What we've tried to do at the United States Institute Against Human Trafficking is create a trafficking-free zone uh, awareness program, but it's not only just awareness, it's a call to action. What we try to do is we can take this trafficking-free zone into various cities, towns, counties, and basically get all the various sectors of that community from law enforcement, to the judicial system, to the schools, to the to the the hospitals and the medical profession, to the churches, to all those involved in the community, and basically give them two or three things that they can do in their sphere of influence that can really make a difference on making people aware of the, pro of the problem, and then what can they individually do uh, 
as, as a person and then as a company or a church or, or, or whoever it may be. And we've had great success with really creating awareness, but also driving out a lot of the human trafficking uh, problems. How do you think we can get communities more united and more involved in this fight? It's been very challenging because it's labor intensive. Uh, we have to, you know, we try to train all the various sectors of, of a society, of a community, and get them involved in the fight. But uh, what would, what do you think would be good for uh, communities to do, cities and towns to do, kind of along the lines of uniting and, and working together? You know, we have found with the trafficking free zone that, you know, law enforcement can do their thing, but you can't arrest your way out of the problem. Schools can educate, but they're oftentimes reluctant to teach their students about child sex trafficking, about the evils of what's going on in the world. They think that if they don't tell them that, you know, they'll avoid the problem or not get caught up into it. So there's all these kind of challenges within the various sectors of society. But what do you think that would be a, a, a way that we we can come together and be united and really make the biggest difference to protect not only our kids, but even adults that are being trafficked. What, what more can we do? Well, the first thing that I want to touch on is the education piece. What I've learned even in just my work and partnering with you all too is that you actually can go into certain schools. And sometimes it's getting the parents involved. Mm -hmm. Having the parents advocate, go up to the schools and say, I, need, I want this in my child's curriculum. Because I know in certain states there's actually a mandate that it is, it is announced in the curriculum. The problem is, is that it's only like you could do a 15-minute show, 15-minute video, then you created the awareness. But, you know, we are even developing a prevention program for schools mm -hmm. to surround the schools and to surround these vulnerable youth with the actual empowerment curriculum on what are healthy red flags, what are the boundary settings, what do unhealthy people look like, what are red flags that you see within your friends, how do you report something. And so I think it's in that space in education, we need parents to rise up. We need parents to say, my children need to know about this. And as education, educators, this is the safest place for my kids to learn this before they learn it on a street or before they learn it from their friends that might be thinking they're just giving massages at some guy's house and then in exchanging sexual favors for money. And so I think that's a really thing with education. Parents need to get involved. Go to your school, mm -hmm. legislators, your boards, and ask for those curriculums. Ask for the finances and the money in order for the school to provide it. Because for a fact, they give money and they get money for other things and other programming. So what is needed best in that? Another thing with prevention, I believe that everybody should stay in their own lane. What is your organization or what can you do? Unfortunately, law enforcement can create, can't create housing. They can advocate for housing. They can talk about the problem of how much the problem is and how many beds will look open. Law enforcement can also partner with agencies and help with security and things like that in zone, maybe safe houses and stuff like that and come in partnership, not to, you know, arrest and, you know, um, scout out places that might be doing, you know, like that you want to arrest, you know, kids and youth that might be being trafficked but how can you partner with some organizations that might need safety stuff? We're seeing safe homes getting shut down or things are happening, traffickers are coming on premises or it's a safety issue. How can local law enforcement you know, participate in that? Another thing is about when people stand in their lane, what can you actually give? What are you skilled to do in that your organization or even as a community member do? 
What can you do? Can you volunteer your time? Can you help with awareness? Can you help with maybe like campaigning and things like that? Can you have the time to go down to talk to your legislation or, or go to a board meeting that's happening in your county in order to you know, start talking about this issue? And so what happens is, is that when we don't stay in our lane, we're trying to do everything mm -hmm. versus focus on what is the most important thing right now. And it's not about, we need to stop trying to immediately rescue these kids. Like we, we think that we're the rescues and we're not. We're the people that need to be providing the resources. So when it's time, we're the people that have the options for them, a better option for them. It's not a choice for them, but they also need better options and better resources and more community and more healthy homes and more foster homes, right? If it's for some kids that's in the child welfare system, we need those resources first before we jump way ahead and try to shut down, you know, group homes or before we try to stop um, criminalizing these kids. We don't want to criminalize them, but sometimes there's no other place to take them. So before we do that, make sure, let's make sure that we have five other homes set up and ready in order to take these kids in. And so it's about standing like, and it's just about planting seeds. Plant those seeds because of, planting a seed is not for a season. Planting a seed is for a lifetime. And so many things that I learned in my life was planted at 15 years old once I got out of the life. Many things have also been planted while I was in the life, but a lot of those things didn't begin to grow and to blossom until I was in my 20s. Mm. But it's helping me be successful. Also, as an organization, stop looking at numbers in order to define success. Because someone can graduate, someone can transition out of a system, someone can get their high school diploma, someone can go off to college, you know? You know, how many numbers are actually, did they leave college and not end up on welfare? How many of them are not living in public assistant housing? You know, how many of them have really great benefits in order to get health care for their children? How many of them are actually becoming healthy parents or healthy young adults, healthy young men and women? You know, how many didn't end up in a domestic violence relationship after being exploited? Like, that's how we measure success. Not by the mechanical things, if they got a car, if they got a degree and things like that. We measure their success and if we're doing the right thing and the right job by, do they have great morals? Did we build them to be, to have great healthy characteristics and to be a kind, loving, empathetic human being and also healing from their trauma? Have we made them aware of the things that they've been through in their life that it's not their fault in order to process their trauma? Like, we don't do those things though. Like us as an institution, we do, but there are many other organizations that don't do that. You know, and sometimes that's okay though, because the child welfare system is not built to do that. They're built to monitor, they're built to place and things like that. And so how can, if you're an organization that do only housing, then how can you do a better job at that? How can, create, how can you create income and revenue in for that organization to create more housing? Stop trying to do the healing piece and do the curriculum and hire other people to come into the housing to do the thing that they are called to do and that they're really good at. And so that's what takes community effort. And sometimes in organizations, in government programs, in politics, everybody's fighting for the money. But nobody's finding, having, providing really good, good care because we're trying to do everything. We know how grants work. We know how money works. And so when it's federal, when it's grant money, when it's state contracts, it's all these rules that, and then we're trying to do every single thing. We're trying to give mental health for youth. We're trying to give prevention programs. We're trying to do housing. Oh, and we're trying to do foster placement, right? We're trying to do all these things that it's not even in our, in our, design, our first 
created mission and values as an organization. And I think that's really, really important, even for the community, even as a next door neighbor. Maybe can you volunteer your time at a church? Can you volunteer your time at a center? And maybe you're just on staff in order to do like the support line that you can do from your home. You know, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children have a huge hotline of volunteers who who if you were a parent that your child was actually exploited, you can become a possible volunteer or even people in the community in order to answer the hotline in order to help somebody navigate. And then they also have support. There are various ways that people can help and actually get involved, but we gotta just stop focusing on doing the, so much rescuing. Like, mm -hmm. I'ma get a kid off the street and, and that's gonna save their life. I'ma get an adult off the street. No, it's a process, it's a journey. Yeah, I was gonna ask time. you, in regards to prevention, I oftentimes ask people, and I don't always get very good answers, is, in regards to prevention, how do we identify a young person that's high at risk to be trafficked? In other words, how do we evaluate and identify before a child becomes trafficked? In other words, what are some things that we can be looking for? Is it economics? Is it education? Is it a broken, dysfunctional family? Is it what, what are some of the things that indicate that that child is high at risk to be trafficked or abused or to be exploited? I, I, I'm trying to figure out in my own mind for the last couple of years, how do we get ahead of the problem? Instead of, yeah, we, we've come, I think in, in Los Angeles and in Las Vegas and Tampa and certain other cities, we can identify what are some of the red flags for high at risk youth, runaways, homeless, uh, some of the other factors. But how, how do we get ahead of that to help a family, to help a single mom or a family that's struggling that maybe doesn't understand the value of education or maybe they don't know uh, the system and how to navigate through it and, 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 and maybe they're both out of work and it's an economic. And it, what are some of those things that we can first, how do we identify that? And then how do we get resources to families and communities that we stop this way ahead of a child even becoming high at risk and therefore never trafficked? Well, you actually said that. So it really is about economics. It's about safety. It's about their communities. It's about their social lives. Like that's how we can really look at a child's life and look at like really see the indicators mm -hmm. in someone's life, right? Um, the mental health, the homelessness. Like, like, so when you look at like economics, right? Like if you look at economics, even as an education part, you have really low, low income communities that have lack of resources in education or institutions, schools that these kids are already being prepared to not even read at a fifth grade level, reading at a first grade level. And so what happens is, it's like, I also believe that education is at the center, especially in prevention. Because what is the one place that most parents have to send their children and children have to go? School. Mm -hmm. That it could be the number one safest place for a child in order to get stability, in order to get information, to get an education, and even to get fed, right? Mm -hmm. I know that even like if a kid is not going to school, they have actual mandated people who have to contact the home and contact the families to see why this kid is not enrolled. So we, we also have a really good fair playing ground there. Because then we can, and the problem is, is we're not talking to kids in elementary schools. We're already talking to kids when they're entrenched. 
when, when they're that already start? in it. Uh, oh, it immediately should start in elementary, and it should definitely at be what like, grade would you say? It should start fourth, fifth, sixth grade. I would honestly grade? say that it should start in like the fourth grade. It should start around 11 years old, even sometimes 10 and 11, depending on the demographics, depending mm -hmm. on the environments. Because our fear sometimes is that, oh, my 10 year old shouldn't know about that. Well, guess what? She's living in a community that it's already happening in. Mm -hmm. So by the time that she's 12, she's already going to know about trafficking. But she won't know it as trafficking, she'll know it as prostitution. And so we have to get in ahead by educating them. And it can be, you know, age appropriate. It right. can be about healthy yeah. boundaries. It can be about what do unhealthy people look like? Right. What are the characteristics of un people, un unhealthy people look like? How do they act? Mm -hmm. You know, how do they make you feel? That's yeah. the most important thing too. Helping them recognize how a person makes them feel and if they don't feel safe with a person. That's the ultimate thing, but so many kids don't, even know that about themselves. And so that's how that looks like specifically in that. When you're talking about low economics, when you're talking about like in a community and an environment where there's lack of resources of even just housing and food, right? Who can mostly talk to them about maybe prevention? Maybe it's contacting the county welfare office and actually having class that they, the parents and some of the, the young adults might need to go to in order to be aware of that. And so sometimes it's overseeing the parents in a way, mm -hmm. you know, that many of them, we know a high population on, on welfare or receive some type of human service. What county or state government resources can we include the human trafficking mm -hmm. prevention and have classes there? Not about nutrition. Yeah, we want to have about nutrition. Not just about finding a job, but we also want to educate you about what can happen. Because if you're a child, what we know even by studies, low education, not a great education, mental health, what we've seen for facts, coming from low income communities, or even if you're coming from not a, a, a neglectful home. And when I say neglect, I'm not just talking about abuse, neglect. I'm talking about those parents that make six figures mm. and someone else is raising their child. Mm -hmm. And they have no idea that this child is dealing with a lot of their mental health, anxiety, depression, or feeling like alienation, all these different things. And then they meet up with a kid that you know, have all those things or that is being used to recruit and then now your kid is gone. We've seen that, we've seen that mm -hmm. in the institution and other places that kids run away sometimes and come from really great homes. And so kids are not running to something, they're running from something. Sometimes it's how they feel in, in, inside themselves, like the things that they're feeling. And so how do we like really tackle that is by using sometimes what we already have we, we can use what we have already. And so, you know, prevention should start really early. It shouldn't be once a kid is already 13 and hitting puberty. Like we should already be, just like we talk about sex, we need to be talking about the things that happen even before sex. And the reasons why also, you know, we talk about preventative measures with, with sex, but we also don't talk about the preventative measures of that there are people that have mental disorders and things that they do that sometimes they react to their desires and stuff, and, it, it, and it's child abuse. We're not even fighting against like the people that are actually doing the trafficking and the johns. We're fighting against the internet. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of kids are seeing things way before we think that we see them, mm -hmm. that, they know, that they have seen them. Mm -hmm. A lot of times they know, I remember when I did my first education class, and it was literally at elementary school, fourth grade. And I called Jim, Jim, one of my mentors up and said, Jim, I don't want to talk about, you know, like prostitution. I don't want to say trafficking. I must have started describing a trafficker and a kid, three of them, raised their hand and said, you talking about a pimp? 11-year-olds, hmm. 10 and 11-year-olds that are already aware of this. 
And so it looks different in other communities. Also for colleges, right? For adults. Get your college campus and get the kids involved. Mm -hmm. Teach them so then they can make their, the best thing for them, the best thing for prevention with kids is their peers teaching them. Their peers giving them the information and teaching them about what's happening. And like I said, all of it can be age appropriate. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good point about reaching into the high schools and the colleges. We have an abolitionist program where we will provide information, supplies, training to equip someone to get involved in their school or their community so that they can do something uh, uh, about this problem. I think one of the things that I realize is we need to train up people and raise up an army of warriors to protect and fight for our kids, which leads me to buyers. Oftentimes you hear men, and men are stupid in, in many ways, that say, not all, of them. Not all but, but, but quite a few, that this is a victimless crime or that she wanted it or that I'm helping her in some way. What, what would you say to men in a preventative way? What would you say to men that are out there buying sex, uh, from, especially from children, why they need to stop and the realities of what you've experienced and why we need to go after demand, why we've got to try to change the hearts and minds of men and, and let them know that this is definitely not okay and they need to stop. Well, man, the, the real thing, I wish I could say a lot, but I can't. <laughs> um, but what I will say is that sometimes some buyers also don't know what's happening behind the veil, don't know what's happening after they give the money. They don't know that she's working for someone. She don't know, like sometimes... It's not that they don't, they, they, they still do believe that it's a choice, but they don't know that she's not getting the money. And I only know that from working with certain agencies that work with buyers or like diversion programs and stuff mm -hmm. that have said a lot of them was like, oh, I didn't even know that she was, especially the rate at that sometimes it's one-time buyers. And that's what we got to prevent. Mm -hmm. What is causing you to even want to go out there and do that? You know, mm -hmm. and so a lot of times it's, you have your consistent buyers, of course, especially in our nation, like the consistent ones, you have regulars that continue to buy, but then you also have a high percentage of first time buyers that might hear about it somewhere or hear from a buddy like, hey, you know, or come in town for a football game, right? Or mm -hmm. a basketball game, like, hey, you know that they got this thing and it's a one-time thing, you know? And so how do we reach that, th that population mm -hmm. that, it's a one-time thing, they didn't understand, they, they didn't know, they thought that they were helping her out. And so even sometimes, I know we don't want to, but it's even educate, having law enforcement educate them. And I know that in some states they do that, in some states they don't do that, you know? Mm -hmm. And also to stop giving them warnings. Like if this is a consistent thing, they shouldn't be getting a ticket for this. This is not something, somebody's life, my life is not worth a ticket mm -hmm. of the years of damage, mental damage that you, that you cause. The very event that has happened to me as a child has now carried me on to my parenting with my daughter. And I'm very hypervigilant, you know, I don't trust all men. I'm not gonna lie, sometimes I have a problem with trusting certain ethnic groups, you know, because of, because of my trauma. And that's who primarily probably tr that bought sex from me. And so that's really hard for me, you know, because everybody should be in, in viewed as an individual. Um, and so to the men that, is, that are buying sex, like, 
Like you're really destroying lives. You're really destroying healthy marriages. You're destroying sometimes your own marriage. You're destroying, you know, the future for even for your kids. I've had men who have purchased sex from me that had children my age at the time, you know, that would talk about their kids. Do you know that the day that your children found out that you was purchasing sex with children, what that would do to them? What example are you setting for them? Are you doing it to your own children too? And I think that we don't look at it like that. Like these buyers need to understand that they are really destroying lives. You think that you're helping somebody, but you're really creating a lifetime of trauma. That takes a long time to heal from. And honestly, sometimes you never heal from it. You're destroying future marriages. You're destroying future relationships with people. It took me years to be in a room with just men. All men? Oh, I would start screaming to the top of my lungs. I wouldn't feel safe. I need to know the closest exit. Like, and that's not healthy. It's not healthy. It's not healthy for me. You know, like I want to be able to live in a world where I don't have to always be questioning somebody and looking over my shoulder, always have my guard up because this is a reminder of somebody that did something to me. You know, I don't want to think that every man in my child that comes in contact with my child's life is going to let her. Like, you know, like, mm -hmm. come on now. Or like, and so it affects them for a lifetime, for a very long time. I've seen it destroy marriages. I've seen my friends get married and have, have, have sexual trauma with their husbands or feel like they don't wanna have sex with their husbands because it reminds them of, of being with a John that took advantage of them and bought them as a child. It destroys lives of even when it comes to love, that love has to be bought. Love is bought at a price with a, with a dollar sign. That's the number one thing I've seen in our, in our children that we've worked with is like, that they think that love is identified with a job and with transactional. Love is not transactional, love is unconditional. But so many people don't want to hear that. And that's the things that these, these Johns and these purchasers, and that's what we call them, you know, Johns. And, and so it's, it's and various other names what we call them. We also call them tricks and we also call them marks and things like that. But you're really destroying the health of someone. Last question. I've read various data and research that says 85 to 92% of all women that are being prostituted or being trafficked don't want to do it, but you hear the argument on the other side for men is everybody doing it, everyone that's being out there as a prostitute or a traffic victim, they do it because they want to or it's what they've chosen. But most of the survivors that I've met in the last eight years in, in doing this say, no, I was forced to do it. I was coerced to do it. I had someone telling me what to do. I really didn't have a choice. What, 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 what would you say to that? You know, first thing we gotta stop separating human trafficking and prostitution in our, in our country, because we do that. Like I've said before, we separate human trafficking to be international versus the things that are happening domestic, or we separate human trafficking from children to adults. But the truth is, even if someone wants to, you know, identify it and define it as prostitution because of law, because of law, then how are you calling them a prostitute and a victim? And so everything is in one that these women, these men, these children are being trafficked. How we use language is very important. And so our politicians need to know that. Our government needs to know that. Just because a child is under the age of 18 and just because an adult is 18 does not make her a prostitute and make her a victim. They're both victims. Because nine times out of 10, that adult, remember, that 30-year adult, my mother was in her late 30s when she got out of life. My mother turned her first trick with 
a purchaser at 12 years old. So they, many of them, majority statistically have seen that they have started when they were in their teens. And it just, you know, continues. And so I think the, the thing about that is, is that it's not a choice. It's not even an argument that I will have with people. Because until you can tell me what was the better option for them, then you can talk about choices at the time when everything started. And so then a lot of times, you know, in, in our world right now, we also want to separate kids from adults saying like, you know, the kids are the victims and it's not a choice for them and the adults, but a lot of them been doing it for, for majority of their life. And so we have to be mindful of that. Um, it has never been a choice, even when you see all these campaigns and when you're seeing stuff about my body, my rights, or you're talking about sex workers and things like that. Well, you got to also look at the demographics of a sex worker. What was their demographics? Like, what was what did their economic statics actually look like when they, you know, when they chose to do that? And so they're not the majority. And I want people to know that they are not the majority of the kids and the, the, the women and the boys and the men that get trafficked. Absolutely not. They are not the majority. They're a very small few percentage, cut it. And majority of them, that before they became a sex worker and tried to you know, advocate for rights, they were a victim. Mm. So I'm, I'm very, I, I fully disagree and will say that to the top of my lungs to the shout, I don't care how many people was in the room. Um, and so I think another thing is, is that with people have to understand like also the way trauma bonding works and the way that if you know something for your whole life, it becomes normal. And this is the best way I could describe it. Think about your normal and everyone that would be watching, what would their normal be every single day with their children? And these are people before, if their children has never been trafficked, before anything happened, what does life look like for them? Like, is it, you know, thinking about college? Is it thinking about, you know, um, what school you're going to go to, what career you're going to have, or if you're a wife, you know, think about marriage. If you're a husband, thinking about what life looks like. Like every day you get up and go to work and live your life. Now I want to tell you the normal of a 11-year-old girl that was sex trafficked in the United States. For four and a half years, my normal was being raped seven to 15 times a night. For four and a half years, my normal, what looks like is 4,000 rapes per year, if you want to calculate it. My normal was being beat. My normal was being told what to do, how to do it, when to do it, what to wear, how to talk, how to walk, what to say. My normal was being raped by men who was purchasing sex. My normal was, you know, not going to school, not playing with dolls, not thinking about what I was going to do at prom, not designing my wedding dress, not thinking about what it would be like on my wedding day because men were already violating me. That was my normal for four and a half years. Now, you try to tell me that there is any other life outside of that when all I've been in is entrenched and in, 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 in so much captivity of a lifestyle that wasn't my choice from the beginning. There are no fairs, no college fairs. There are no business fairs. When you're in elementary school and they have career day, there is no booth that says, I want to be a human trafficking victim. I want to be a prostitute when I grow up. People don't have those booths sitting out as a career. So explain to me, I want the world to know, explain to me how is that a choice? Because you didn't want to do it when you was a kid. So what happened? They didn't want to do it when they was a kid. So what happened? And, I, and so we need to stop pointing the finger a lot of times and saying like, this is her choice. This is what she want to do. There was all the resources. No, it's just not time. And when you've been doing something for so long, that was my normal. 
if my normal is getting beat, if my normal is being raped, if my normal is not eating, my normal is being told what to do and how to do it, my normal is being institutionalized, anything outside of that is uncomfortable. Especially when you've been, when you've been doing it for a long time. Mine was just four and a half years now, let alone someone who started at 12 and is now 30. That's a long time. And imagine being 30 years old and being invisible to the world. Imagine being 30 years old or even 25 years old and someone telling you that it was your choice and you've been told that for your whole life. You will start believing it, that it was your choice. You will start acting in a way that shows that you think it's your choice. My mother's 50 years old, literally this year. My father is a John. My mother first said that she, won, she, she knew about prostitution at nine years old. And at 50 years old, she finally can say like, I'm a victim. I'm a victim of my environment. Like, I didn't choose this for so long. She used to tell her daughter, who's an activist against this. I chose that. No, didn't nobody forced me. I knew it. No, somebody exposed you to it. And people didn't protect you and people hurt you. And my grandmother wasn't paying attention. And people abused you. It wasn't your choice. You didn't ask for this. So. Well, thank you for sharing your experiences and your knowledge of this situation. Thank you for fighting the fight for so many others and trying to empower uh, victims and just caring enough about others to sac make sacrifices that will make a difference in other people's lives. So I appreciate that. Thank, thank you so much. Thank Jenny. you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you're wanting to have more insight about fighting trafficking, here's a great place to start. Go to usiaht.org slash abolitionist. From there, subscribe to our newsletter so that we can send you actionable steps to take and find ways to get plugged into your local community to be involved in prevention and victim care. Become an abolitionist against human trafficking today. Again, that is usiaht.org slash abolitionist. You can also check out some more of our content on social media or subscribe to this podcast. All of the links to our different social media channels are in the description. Again, thank you for listening to the Trafficking Free America podcast. Until next time.